Good morning. What we worked on last week was an introduction to the importance of why Gomorrah should be part of a Kirov curric- curriculum. What we'd like to focus on this week is going to the next stage. Last week we dealt with absolute beginners, people who'd never been exposed to Talmud at all. How do you get them involved? How do you make it exciting? How do you make it relevant? This week we're going on to a very different group of people, people who don't need to be convinced about the importance of the role that Gomorrah plays, but rather they are thirsty to understand it. And what you want to do is you want to provide them with the ability to advance in their studies. Now, this is very crucial because getting them excited at the initial stage isn't the hardest thing to do because the way we did it with the role playing, with the involvement, creates an energy which has an expiry date on it. You can only do that type of shear for a limited amount of time. At a certain point in time, you have to shift over to text. When you shift over to text, so then things are inevitably going to get a lot harder. So again, you want to make it as much as possible accessible to the guys so that they can feel that they're making progress. At this point in time, in the cure process, when people start to appreciate what Torah is, they do have motivation. So it doesn't have to be as easy as easy can be. But it must be that after you've engaged them and you've taught them a Gemara Shear, there's a certain sense of progress they feel and a certain sense of independence. So what we're focusing now is trying to translate the things that you're doing in your brain into a series of steps in order for you to convey it to them and they can walk away saying, I know how to do this. You're trying to give them skills to empower them. So what we discussed last week was that in textual understanding there are in fact three components which help to wade off the ultimate enemy of the Talmudic student whose name as it does to me and to you brings shudders through our spines the the foe that waits at all at all at all at every corner in the text to pounce as you recall, that the ultimate enemy of the Talmudic, Talmudic student is? Yes. Excellent. At least you're clear on one thing. So, you've got the vagueness. You're trying to defeat vagueness. In order to do so, you have to remember the three principles, pillars of textual analysis, which are? <laughs> so, you've got Structopop. Structopop stands for? Para- Did someone say parasite? <laughs> <laughs> Paradigm shift. We'll explain what they mean. What we explained last week was structure. We began to discuss powerful questioning. I don't believe we have discussed paradigm shift. Right? Good. Structure, we said that one of the most crucial things when you're processing information, if your initial understanding of the information given is faulty, is distorted, is d- you deleting parts of the information, anything you think there afterwards is going to be impaired, it's going to be insufficient. We, we, didn't, we didn't get through structure. We didn't get through structure. Okay, well, so we'll reiterate. Or So structure means as follows, that I, I think we did mention that in terms of the <coughs> mental processing, there are three stages to the mental processing, that there's the input, there's the elaboration, the thinking about it, the understanding, and there's the output, the expression. Mother-in-law. Mother-in-law. Correct. Well done. At least you got something important out of the <laughs> share last week. How to fend off a hostile mother-in-law. Um, so, structure is the first stage where you make sure that the input is correct. We'll discuss in detail in the mission itself. We'll illustrate what that means. Powerful question, we discussed the analogy to water, that as thirsty as you are, so too does the water taste good. The more questions you have, the more powerful the knowledge that you intake is, the great impression it has on you. Paradigm shift 
is a very, very tricky thing. Again, it's fundamental for learning as a whole, as you all realize through your own learning, but also in terms of a person's approach to Yiddishkeit and their general Mahalachin growth. Great. So, um, Rabbi Blackman has pointed out that I made the error of speaking in English on Shodet. So, I would paradigm shift means as follows. A paradigm is the framework you view things from within. So, for example, if I know the halachas of Lashon Hara and someone comes and says, you can't believe what Shlomi did this morning. I go, oh my gosh. That's because in my paradigm, speaking badly about another person is negative. If, however, my paradigm is not Torahic, it's secular, if you open... This is the, this is the, if you open the, the Israeli paper, so there's a column called, how, how would you call the gossip column in Hebrew? It's got Rechilus Hayoim. I'm pretty sure that that's not the secular pronunciation, but that's like, come and look at it, Gewaldig, get some Rechilus. Imagine, in one sitting, thousands of Israel Dereisa. So it's not, it's not, that, that paradigm means the way I look, the way I see the thing. If I've got a Torah perspective, I look at it and I go, oh gosh, the worst thing in the world. If I haven't got that perspective, the way I look at it is, Geshmak, tell me more. So the paradigm is the, the, the framework, the lens that you see things from, with, from, through. Good? Paradigm shift. Now, what is paradigm shift? Why is it relevant to learning? It's relevant to learning, it's relevant to Torah. Whenever we approach a new topic, we always see it through a lens. And if our lens, if our perception is faulted, the natural inclination that we have is to interpret things in the light of what we already know. When you're learning with a person, Gemara, this comes up the whole time. For example, we're going to be doing our Menechah Sakai. When a person approaches it, and he decides what he thinks the din should be, it's because he's coming from a particular vantage point. He's coming from a perspective. And he's thinking to himself, well, in my value system, this is what should work. The inclination is to fit what I'm learning into what I already know. As a result, sometimes it does fit, very often it doesn't. What a person will do is they'll contort what they see into what they already know and not learn anything new. Whereas, if you create an awareness of your paradigm, then it becomes flexible, and then you can say, I was seeing things in this light. Now that you've given me this information, I'm able to see them in that light. I'll illustrate all these things because it's quite hard to grasp them when it's abstract. So these are the three pillars of understanding which run throughout every text. What we're going to do now is going to go on to applying these three things to the mission itself. Which brings us to the 353 Mishnah Analysis Technique. 353 Mishnah Analysis Technique is the 11 stages required to come up with a solid understanding of the Mishnah. Now, three is underneath structure. We began this and we said, in when you see a Mishnah, what you have to do is you have to be able to number, you have to be able to label, and you have to be able to order. Number, label, and order. What does that mean? So now, it means that the mission is made up of a series of parts. To defeat vagueness, you can't say if I ask you the question, so tell me, what's the Mishnah talking about? You can't reply and give me some type of generic statement that the Mishnah is talking about jugs and breakage. It's too, it's too non-specific. What you have to do is you have to say, the Mishnah is comprised of four parts, the first three parts deal with this, the fourth part with that, and break it down clearly. So what we want to do is we have to be able to number the parts, avoiding vagueness, label them to describe their function, and then express why they are ordered in the way they are. So let's look at our Mishnah. So here's the Mishnah. Okay. A small tactical error, I didn't leave myself a copy. 
So now you've got the Mishnah. Now at this point in time, what you have to remember is you don't want to make it too dry. So even when you read through the Mishnah, you have to express with your body language your enthusiasm. We've discussed briefly the thumbs. What you can do, and I often do, is I give a brief introduction to the usage of thumbs and body in general, as well as the sing-song intonation. We touched on it, but you can really go to town with it. For example, it's a very... It's a very, for, for a person who hasn't learned Gemara before, it's very unusual the way that we speak and sing and the nigunim that come out from us, as well as our bodily emotions, are extremely interesting to the, to the secular observer. The kind, of, the kind of body movements you see in yeshivas are, I would say, quite unique. I, I don't know if you've seen, there's many types of responses. The, the classic ones, again, the classic ones are the different sized arcs. So you've got the sweeping arc, You've got the narrow arc, you've got the, no, the, the arc and plunge. Um, <laughs> what you want to do is you want to, when you're illustrating and you're trying to coach your people, you have to make sure that the timing is accurate. What you don't want to happen is that the concluding sing-song graph intonation comes before the zenith of the thumb. So, for example, if I say that Rava is wrong... See, my thumb's way, way, way. It's gone over my shoulder point. That's very, very sloppy. You have to... So again, what you have to do is you have to make some type of a... We've got the left thumb to introduce the second side. And then you've got, you've got the, the vibrating movements, which indicate deep thought. Have you seen that? And then you've got... Again, it depends. You can, there's so much variety. You can do the digging. You, it's unlimited. Um, so so you're, going, you're, going to, you're going to the Hamenyech. So you go like this. You go, Hamenyech is a card. So what you want to do now, you've reached the level where the people that you're teaching are actually interested in understanding the translation of the word. At this point in time, you gently, gently, gently remove the art scroll from the shelf. And you say, okay guys, we're going to do this ourselves. And they look at the sheet and they go, Rabbi, where, where are the dots? You say, no dots. You listen carefully to the way I'm reading it. If you need to, you can fill in the dots and write the translations on top of the words. Now, this is an important chinuch technique because the more they invest in the process, the more it becomes a part of them. So actually, if, you just, if they've got the art scroll at this point when you're trying to teach them how to learn, you will handicap them forever. You take the art scroll out, you take everything away, and now you are working with them and they have to invest. So you go, and you have to be careful that you can't fudge your translations. And you have to make sure that you're accurate. Sometimes, if you yourself are not sure of the translation, so then look at the, the English art scroll. Because otherwise, you're going to be translating a word. Often people, if you've ever listened to Chavrisa speaking, um, often you translate from Hebrew into Hebrew. So this man was in the That doesn't help me. And you, sometimes when you're not used to it, you'll actually you'll translate it. So they'll say, what do you mean Rishusarab? You know, Rishusarabim doesn't help. So what you have to go is you have to actually make a conscious effort to go through a translation and you say, one that placed S card, and then you look at the person and you say, translate S. And he's like, absolutely. And then you like have a bit of fun with him and you say, there's actually no translation for S. And then you go, Hakad, the jug. Now, this says, Bet, Reish, Hey, Reish. What does that mean? He's not You say, it's Two words, Bereshut, it probably helps to speak. Most people who have learned Hebrew haven't learned tough and soft. So it probably helps initially to pronounce the, way, pronounce the words the way they've heard them, which would mean not Bereshut or Rabim, because they won't understand what that means. Bereshut HaRabim. So Hamenyach et HaKad, the one that places to rest a jug, Bereshut HaRabim, Uva and comes, Acher, another. Do you understand? Word for word, word for word, so the person can translate. Uva and comes, okay. Don't translate, read and translate the sentence. If you read and translate the sentence, you've just said, I don't want you to write in the words, I'm doing this, not you. Again, the onus is on him. You're just a mediator. Uba acher and comes another, the nit kal and stumbles ba in it, the shavra and he breaks it. Patur, he's exempt. That's the first part. What we're going to do first is all we're going to do is read through 
and translate. That's all we're trying to do. But Rabbi, what happens? No questions. No questions. Right now, we are reading through and translating. If we don't read through and translate accurately, we can't ask the questions later on. Patience. And you structure it. You structure it. If you start getting into a discussion about the lambdas at this point in time, you will not be able to teach the person how to learn because he'll always go into the lambdas and he won't get the basic skills. So at the point of translation, you hold him back and you say, please, 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 Kyle, one second, let's get the translation clear. And if Huzak, he was damaged, it's a passive form, one day you'll learn all about Puel. I mean you guys. And... <laughs> <laughs> and if he is damaged in it, the owner of the jug, is liable in his damages. So what you've done now is you've translated it word for word, word for word. Now what may happen is when you're doing that, some, some, if you, it depends on the size of your share, but even if it's just one person, He'll put up his hand and say, Rabbi, what does the word Hamanyach mean? So again, it requires patience. It's worth the investment because this way you'll be able to move him forward in his learning. So now you've got to the translation stage. The next thing you want to do is now start the number and label. So you say, how many parts are there to the Mishnah? Now, classically, the Mishnah is divided up. There are exceptions. But classically, the Mishnah is divided up into what's called the scenario, the case, and the ruling. What we would call, this is the tziur, and this is the din. Having the ability to describe the difference between those two things aids with clarity. So now, in our Mishnah, there are two scenarios, which are followed by two dinim, making the Mishnah a two-parted Mishnah, each of those two parts divided up into parts A and B. And they are. You following me? Gentlemen? Yes, yes. Okay. So in other words, there's two stages. The first stage is describing the case. If someone stumbles on a jug and breaks it, the din is potter. If he gets hurt in the process, the din is the owner of the jug has to pay for his liability. Those are the two cases. So now, the reason why we chose this mission is, again, it's succinct. We don't get caught up in the long mission like Adam Matthias. We can get over the point. So now, what you want to do is, there's how many parts are there to the Mishnah? Two. two parts. Divided. Label the two parts. They are? Tziur din. Tziur din. Order the parts. Why does it first say, Hamenyech is akad, and afterwards it says, Vim huzak ba? Seemingly, the reason for the order is because it's sequential. It's a sequence. It goes in order. First, he puts the jug down. Then you break it. And once it was broken, if you got damaged through the process of breaking, he's liable. So the reason why it says the case one first and case two second is because that's the order in which it happened. That's not always the order of Mishnayis. Sometimes the order of Mishnayis is completely different if it's listing a series of cases. For example, in Eilu Metzias, when it says, um, etc., 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 it would be much more complicated to say, why did Peirus Mephuzorim come first? Why does it stay that case before Shemeh? In each Mishnah, you have to know why was the first case at first, second, second, third, third. In this Mishnah, it's relatively simple and therefore it's easy to understand. You need to do numbering, labeling and ordering and then you're able to ask the person that you're teaching and say, Okay, Shmelka, tell me, how many parts of the Mishnah? And he has to repeat to you. What you're trying to do is, again, you're mediating. The Mishnah is what you want him to learn. You don't want to have the Mishnah and then thrust it upon him. You want him to engage in the Mishnah. So you keep on asking him these questions. How many parts to the Mishnah? He says to you two. And you say, are they subdivided? He says yes. Into what? He'll tell you. Scenario, ruling, scenario, ruling. Then you know through that feedback that he's getting it. You succeed in succeeding what's called conveying the skill to him. Let's go on to the next case, which is uh, powerful questioning. 
powerful questioning is uh, represented with the acronym which is pronounced, as you can easily see, Lewis. Uh, when, when you're going back and forth with, let's say, Kyle, um, and you're working out at different stages, what happens to the rest of the class? So again, it depends on how big your class is. Four or five people. Four or five people, you keep on bouncing around the class. Okay, Kyle, excellent. And Kyle, what's the first part of the Mishnah? Okay, Jim, what's the second? And finally, Rob, what's the connection between the two parts? Lambda and Bill, what's the labeling? The larger the class, when you when you handle with one guy, you get stuck with this guy. We're not staring at the first So, so that's, 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 that's always a challenge when you're de dealing with an interactive format. And that's why it's not ideal to have 20 guys in the Gemara share. If you have, if you have eight guys, you can do it. But again, you have to introduce them and you can say, guys, this is not about me teaching you. It's about you learning. You all have to participate and you give over that ethos so that they're not coming in to listen to you speak. If they come in, what happens often in the show, everyone wants to listen to what the Rebbe has to say. So then they get disturbed every time someone else speaks. If you say to them, guys, I'm going to try and say nothing and you're going to have to say everything, so then their mind frame changes. Okay? Good. So now we're on to Lewis. Lewis. Lewis are the five different questions you need to ask yourself in the Mishnah. The truth is, it should say Lisa, but it's not Sanua. And because this, 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 you actually should come at the end. But we'll explain why and how that happens. The first thing, again, what I'm doing now, all I've done is I've made a cutesy acronym from what the Sifak Klalim say and what you should do first, second, third in the Mishnah. Over here, what you want to do, the first thing you want to do, it's called, in Hebrew, Duke in English you're going to call this language language the first thing you want to do is you want to examine the language and look for is there anything extra anything superfluous anything strange anything repeated you go through the text and you have an awareness of what I'm doing now is I'm looking for problems in language so for example if we take the Mishnah so the Hamenech Esakad Pretty okay. Precious Arabim, fine. Uvoache veniskal bar. Interesting veniskal bar. That's interesting veniskal bar. Mashma in in it in the thing itself. Not that he tripped over it or tripped over the something else and fell on it. Veshavron he broke vato. Vim huzak bar balachavis chayv veniskoi. What's the obvious problem in language? We started off with a card. Pasach bekad v'siyem bechavis. So it's a great way of showing that when a person's alert, he'll say, "One second, balachavis. There's a balachavis over here. There's no balachavis. There's a balakad. Why did you switch from chavis to card? Obvious problem in language. The derech hagemara is when it goes through its analysis of the Mishnah. The first thing it does is sort out the lashon. Once the lashon sorted out, then it goes on to the next stage. You following me? But of course, if the words themselves in the Mishnah aren't clear, you can't go into the logical analysis. So language is, look for anything extra, strange, out of context. The next thing we'll skip understanding for the moment is this is a vital, vital tool and it's something which many people get trapped on because we are lazy. It is called illustration. Illustration means that you have to use something which our minds have to be trained to do in learning it's an absolute prerequisite. And that is, when you see the Mishnah, you have to be able to create in your mind's eye a vivid, fully colored image of exactly what occurred. Once you do that, you commit yourself to a level of understanding on how things work. Which means as follows. If I say, And I say to you, Chaim uh, can tell me, what, What's the Mishnah? Yeah, the Mishnah is a guy who puts a jug in the just a rabbit and someone breaks it. doesn't help me. What you have to do is you have to make it accurate. Extremely vivid. So you say, It was a Sunday morning. Shmerel was walking down one of the main roads in Yerushalayim. The sun had peeped from behind a cloud, casting shadows on the floor in front of him. And he was carrying a two-liter earthenware jug to fill it up with water from the well. As he was walking down the street, he happened to see his good friend, Zalman, peeking out from his shop window. He said, gosh, I haven't spoken to Zalman for ages. What he did was, he gently placed the jug down in the middle of the road and went over to Zalman and said hello. As he was doing this, unbeknownst to him, 
Ruvain was strolling down the street thinking about how he's going to pay his own owner. And as he was doing so, he suddenly felt a sharp pain on his right foot. He looked down, he heard the crash, and he saw a smattered jug in front of him. He went, gosh, where did that come from? As he said those words, Chaimka ran out of the shop. He said, you broke my jug. He said, I didn't break your jug. You sabotaged me. It's a booby trap. And they get into a discussion. So what happens is those two parties then have to come to court. When I've illustrated it vividly, what I've done is I've made a commitment to things like what the Rosh Hashanah looks like, what the size of the jug is, what Reuven was doing when he walked down the street. And those things are going to be critical in our further understanding as we're going to see. So once you've done language, go into illustration. Then you have to do implication. Implication means that when the Mishnayas were written, they were written bedavka. They were written to say, this is true, and by implication, this is not true. It's called a diuk. Now, you have to be careful. When you're doing diukim, you can't be irresponsible in your diyukim. This is known as the dreadful danger of the dof dam diuk. Dof is an Afrikaans word for stupid. And the dreadful danger of the dof dam diuk is as follows. You can't by implication make any linguistic turn. For example, it is light inside this room. So I say, aha, therefore it's dark outside of the room. No, it's not. It's light also outside of the room. I am uh, awake, therefore you all... No, you're not. You're also awake, I hope. You have to have a logical basis to make a deal. If the, 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 the words are relevant, for example, if it says that a person... Um, so since I know there's relevance to becoming Shlosh Esrei, I can be Medayek and say, but if he's not Shlosh Esrei, so then he's not. There has to be a logical reason to make an inference. So what you want to do is, are there any implications? So we'll look at our mission and we'll say, Hameiniach, is that need to, is that an important statement? Is there need for implication? Of course, Hameiniach means, Menyech means it's deliberate. You were aware of it. It wasn't an onus that it fell off your back. That's a diuk. Es akad. Is that a diuk? Avadai. It's a kad. It's not talking about a gigantic thing that is easily visible. It could be the evidence would be very, very different. We're talking about a specific size of object. Bishusarabim, is that a diuk? Of course, because Bishusayachit, the din would be different because you're not responsible to protect about someone invading your own rishus. Uva acher, the niskal. Is the niskal relevant? Yes, because I mean niskal meaning Veloishe Shavra. He didn't break it deliberately, rather, he stumbled on it, and that's why his potter, had he broken it, he would be Chayev. Okay, that's enough to you, King. You get, the po- you get the point. You get the point? Get the point. That's called implication. Um, the second to last one is called source. When you, when you understand where the Mishnah comes from, the Mishnah has got one of two fundamental origins. It is either Doraisa or it is Durabonin. When you go through the Mishnah, you have to understand what's the mocker to the Mishnah. Is it Doraisa? Is it Darabonin? If it's Doraisa, where is it? It could be either Halacha Lemoshe Misinai, which means it's not written in any Pasuk, or it could be from a Pasuk. If it's written from a Pasuk, which Pasuk? That's if it's Doraisa. If it's Darabonin, so then it could either be a Takona or a Gezeira. So let me just re- Say that now that you've understood what I meant, I'll say it now in English. When searching the source of a Mishnah, one has to know, is it, does it originate in the scripture, the written law, or does it originate from something called a kind of law that was handed down orally from Moses that he received a Sinai generation to generation? If it does come from a verse, where is that verse located? If it is of rabbinical origin, origin, is it an enactment or is it a decree? An enactment is, for example, prayer is an enactment. It's not to protect anything. It's a rabbinic invention. Whereas the laws of not touching certain objects on the Holy Sabbath is called a decree to protect 
from infringing on the essence of the law. So when you look at the Mishnah, you have to say, is it rabbinic or is it teretic? If it's teretic, so then what's the source? If it's rabbinic, what is it? Okay, now, what you're going to happen, obviously, obviously, many of these questions that you're going to be asking, you are not going to be able to answer fully. Is that a problem? Is it a problem that you say source and you say, and you say I don't know. Is it worthwhile asking the question if you can't come up with an answer? Why? That's the thirst. It builds up the thirst. If I say, I don't know if it's the right or abundance, so then I'll say, what do you think? Does this look like a takonis chachamim or does this look like it comes from a pasuk? So, looks like it's Doraisa. Well, why? And then you've already told your mind to prepare for the information to follow. And when it suddenly says in the Gemara, Minor Hanimini, you'll go, Ho ho! It's Doraisa! I knew I was right! And then there's a relationship. That's implication source. Finally, we get to understanding. Understanding is trying to find, and this is also, inevitably, you're not going to get to the bottom of this when you just learn the Mishnah. It's trying to find the cloud of the lambdas behind the Mishnah. And it works that y- the Mishnah is a, um, a particular situation. I'm going to switch, I'm going to stay in English. It's a particular situation. It talks about a kad, it talks about menyech, it talks about rishusarabim. What you want to do is, you want to take the particular and you want to make it a general idea. This is called a prat and this is called a cloud. You want to move from the prat to the cloud. You want to take, for example, I give an example. What's the difference between a prat and a cloud? Um, if I discuss the table, um, the air conditioner, the curtains, uh, all these chairs and desks, and I say, I want to know what are all these things, but could find one word to describe the, the closet, the tables, the chairs, we'd call it furniture. Now, parents, I'd like you to ask, I want you to imagine your mind. Um, a vision of furniture. When I say furniture, what do you see in your mind? No, I don't want you to see a chair table. I want you to see furniture. What do you see? What, what, what do you see? No, I don't want you to see different items. I want you to see furniture. In other words, the, the goal of a cloud is you can't see it. The whole difference between a prat and a cloud is a cloud is invisible because it's an idea. It's not something which has a form. So the Mishnahis are written in Pratim, we have to find the Klalim. The Klalim are the principles, you can't see them. The Pratim is what happens when they become clothed. So now, Aminech Hazakad is an illustration of a Klal. What is the Klal of Aminech Hazakad? You following me? Once you do this, once you find the Klal, so that's very powerful. Because now you can say, aha, so it's not only true of a Kalbush Yisarabim, but now they understand the idea is that when a person, thank you, when a person places an item of a particular size in a busy thoroughfare, he'll be liable. So I now know that if I put my new leather briefcase in a corridor in my corporate office, then someone break, they will be, and I know that if I put my ghetto blaster, does that word still exist, in a public domain near the gym, and someone breaks it, and I know, and I know. In other words, once you have the cloud, you can be marabi enormous protein and protein and protein, because you understand the operating mechanism. So what you want to do is you want to challenge the person to do that, and that brings to an end Lewis. What you want to do now is we're going on to paradigm shift. How do you find a method of finding your own paradigm and making an awareness of it and then seeing if the paradigm that the ton of the Mishnah is working, working from fits in? It's all about www.chidush.com. Now, this looks very much like a website. And in fact, people who've been particular, particularly inattentive in my share have come back the next week and said to me, but Rabbi, I went to the website and there isn't such a website. Um, no, it's not a website. It's not a website that's an important thing. This is just a way of remembering paradigm shift. Because the W's don't stand for World Wide Web. They stand for what would I have thought? In other words, had I not been taught the Mishnah, what would my brain have said? When you ask yourself the question, what would I have thought? What are you doing? 
you finding your paradigm you analyzing you putting bringing into the light your preconceived notion then you ask yourself why would I have thought the way I thought? Surely I had a reason to it. So what would I have thought W number one? Why would I have thought a W number two? And then why did the Tana, the author of the Mishnah, reject it? Why did he reject my way of thinking in order to say his own? Now what you'll say to me perhaps is, well, how do you know the Tana will reject it? Maybe the Tana will agree to it. So what happens if the Tanya agrees to it? Good? Good? If the Tanya agrees to what I would have thought is good? What would I say to a Mishnah if I thought the same thing as a Mishnah? Pshita, Michael Mashmelon! Do you understand? In other words, now you see that if you would have thought exactly the same as the Mishnah, so then the Mishnah becomes redundant. And then you have to ask yourself, And then you'd have to say, Which means, is What would you have thought? And why sometimes the Gemara says the why, sometimes it doesn't. www.kiddush.com Do you understand? So that's what you want to do. So the Gemara teaches you itself. The Gemara tells you about the paradigm shift, but if you don't have eyes, you'll never see it. <coughs> Okay. So now we've done mission analysis. Let's see it in terms of the actual text of the mission itself. Um, you'll find that 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 www.kiddush.com and understanding will often very much overlap. Go on. Yes. Yes, guy, what would you have thought? And he says, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I can hear. I, you might, I don't know. They okay. both have good. They're so what you have to do is, in, in a Gemara framework, again, you have, to know you have to be familiar enough with the people to push this far, but you have to be in the person's face. <laughs> um, you have to make them feel. What I generally do is, when you're giving a share, what you're trying to do, because it's interactive, is you're trying to bring out the different personalities against each other. So in order to do that, you have to give them an incentive to support themselves. So, okay, let's go through it. So, what's your name? Shalom. Shalom. Um, what would you have thought if you, would you have thought if you put something in, in the Rishusha Rabbim and someone, someone came and they, they trampled on it, do you think that he should be Chayev or he should be Potter? So pretend you don't know. You don't know? I don't know. You don't know. Um, do you genuinely think? <laughs> Only on Sunday morning. Only on Sunday morning. So I want to awaken you to a whole new world. It's called the world of thought and understanding. In other words, and then he laughs, and then you say to him, well, listen, if you don't know, this is a very important tactic. It's an important tactic both in counseling and in Gomorrah. When a person says, I don't know, you say, I don't want you to know. Guess. Now, obviously, whenever anyone guesses, of course they're saying what they know. But because they, for whatever reason, they, well, they are, they're holding back the information, so he said, you don't have to know, guess. Which one would you guess is right? So then you say, I don't, you must know. Now, again, if the guy is very, very resistant and you see that, there's no, that it's not going anywhere, so then you have to step back. But more often than not, you, could, you, could, you, can, you can coax him. You can say, well, let me ask you a question. Imagine the following scene. Someone takes a, a, a vase off, off your table and they put it in on a, on a sidewalk and you're busy walking along, reading your newspaper, and you trip over that vase. Do you think the person reading the newspaper is, is liable? Yeah. Ah, oh, one second. Oh, oh, so why is he liable in that case? What happens? Okay, so now let's take away the newspaper. So what I'm doing now, I'm trying to, I'm, I knew that case, because I knew that case you're going to have an opinion on, right? Because it's pretty obvious. So now let's, so let's take away the newspaper. Now you're walking along the road and you're looking at the clouds and you bump into the vase. Should you be liable or not? Also. You should also be liable. Why? Because you shouldn't be looking at the clouds. <laughs> now, the next case is you're walking along the road and you're looking ahead of you and you don't see the jug. Should you be liable? No. Why not? Because you're doing what you should be 
So now you've just presented me with an entire logical spectrum. You've told me if the person should have been looking and he is not looking, so then he's responsible. If he was looking and he didn't see it because it was too small to observe, so then he's not liable. Thank you very much, Shalom, for giving me that. Do you understand? <laughs> what I did was, when you said you didn't know, I thought in my mind of a situation that any, it's, it's a very simple and extreme case that you would naturally agree to. And it's related to the case we're talking about in the Mishnah. So I go to the extreme. In the extreme, you're going to have an opinion. And then I slowly shift from the extreme to the middle, to the middle case, and then you yourself start to process the thought correctly. And then I'll say something to you. You see, of course you can think. Following me? Okay. So now, um, in the Mishnah, what would I have thought? So again, what would I have thought? I would have thought, if the Mishnah tells me that when you trip over this jug that you're a potter, so then I'm assuming what I would have thought is that you're chayev. So why would I have thought that you're chayev? It must be that I would have thought you're chayev because you're not responsible. Sorry, I would have thought you're chayev because you're responsible to look where you're going. And since you're responsible to look where you go, and then you find the jug, and you, and you overlook it because you decide to stare into the clouds, so then you're responsible. Why would I have thought that? I would have thought that because if I've learned a little bit about Baba I would have thought that because I said, Adam word la'olam. I feel a bo'inus. Glaikus. But I would have thought that you're liable because a person is obligated to look where they're going. And therefore, the reason is that since a person is obligated not to damage others, he for sure should be liable. And comes the tan and tells me, Patu, that makes no sense. So now, if you can get the guy to say a svara and then look at the Mishnah and say that makes no sense, you've given him independence of thought. Especially when you see what the Gemara does with the Mishnah. But I think that's enough to give you a brief overview of Mishnah analysis. Good? Right on to Gemara. Okay. So what you have to do is at some point in time you have to give them uh, Hakdama and you have to say to them there's two ways you can ask a question. You can ask a question from a position of arrogance or a position of humility. When you ask a question from a position of arrogance the goal in the question is to dismiss the information. And that's expressed by your attitude and your tone of voice. You say, <laughs> that's ridiculous. How can it be exempt? Of course it's stupid. Of course it's liable. <laughs> so then you see that the person doesn't doesn't, doesn't grow from the questioning process. However, if you consider that this is a body of work that's been around for 3,000 years, the greatest minds of Jewish history have spent years of uninterrupted study trying to fathom its depth. And as you go forward, you will see that yourself. So when you ask a question, you should ask it with knowledge, with excitement, but with humility, realizing that this is a hugely deep... Yes. right. That's, that's the level we're dealing with. Okay, now let's go to the Gemara. So, what would I have thought? Why would I have thought it? Why is the Tanya rejected? Okay? How much when you interacting with the class? How much, how much weight did you give each side? So, so what what I do is again it depends on on the dynamic. <laughs> if you, the, the 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 best situation is when you have two two mandarim in the class itself who constantly arguing with one another, and then you just make sure as long as it's not obstructive and they're still saying good stuff, you can let it go. Um, but what, what I'd also use, which is something we haven't ma mentioned before, is you use, this, the, you use machlokas and paradigm flexibility to change people's opinion of Judaism. So uh, we said this in the first year, we mentioned that people generally assume that religion is a non-thinking, um, very narrow-minded approach to life. So what I often do is, uh, it's quite conniving, manipulative, like everything else I do, and that is, what you do is as far as you say, Gentlemen, so on the one hand, what you see is you see that, let's say we get, there are four opinions in the Gemara. Four opinions? Four opinions? 
Isn't it wonderful to see things from multiple perspectives and not to be locked into Western, narrow, linear-style thinking where you can only ever see one way. What we have to do is we have to be broad-minded Haredi Jews seeing that there's so many different ways of exploring a particular topic and then you see the Machloket shows me that I don't get trapped into tunnel vision. So that just depends on the dynamic. Okay, which 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 is uh, it should be true. It should be true that we not we, we we are trained not to be locked into a particular perspective. We every single time, as you're going to see in the Gemara, every single time that you change from half a minute to maskana, you're changing, you're changing, you're changing. We are trained to be flexible thinkers and not to be caught into narrow, Western linear style thinking. Um, <coughs> what, what, there's actually a, it's a, that's a quote from. Uh, politically correct fairy stories. Um, I think that was the reason why um, Little Red Riding Hood was, took the side path and was caught by the wolf. She wasn't trapped into this Western linear style thinking of going along the same path. Um, when, you, when you go on to the Gemara, when you, yeah. For serious reasons. In other words, lo- logically, logically it should come last, but it sounds better as an acronym. Stories for later. Now, <coughs> when you go into the Gemara, what you want to do is as follows. You want to stick to the same principles of structure pop. <coughs> but now, what you want to do is, we're no longer trapped in structure pop. We have now opened to be able to squatterize. Okay, we have to we have to squatterize the Gemara. Now, this is this is based on the Ramchal. The Ramchal's got what he calls the seven primary elements of debate. Um, we've discounted them to six uh, because the, the two of them are so closely related. For the for the beginning Gemara student, I don't think it's productive to make a chiluk between a kash and a Squatter. Where are we? We're still at the we still on the beginners. We still on the beginners. What we've done now with the beginners, what we've we've taught them um, mission analysis, and now we're going to teach them when you see a Gemara, how do you analyze the Gemara? Do I do sorry? Can you tell them about these steps. This is what we're doing right now. What you're doing to us, or do you just? I tell it to them. I say, okay, guys. In order to analyze the Gemara, we need to have tools. The first tool we need to have is squatter. They say, Rabbi, squatter. You mean the guy that we saw sleeping in the shul the other day? So no, that's Avrech, squatter. <laughs> so squatter, what squatter? Squatter is an acronym for six of the seven primary elements of debate that the Ramchal says. And they are in order, S stands for statement, K stands for kasha, Question, answer, terrets, you can see how consistent it is, and finally, Uriah. And you explain to them what each of these things mean as follows. A statement. A statement is any piece of information <coughs> that's brought into the Gemara, which introduces it, it's stated either by, either by a Tana or an Amoira, a Tano Namor introduces a novel idea. The purpose of his statement is in to introduce a novel idea. That is called a statement. What we would say is that when a Tano Namor says a Chidush, which is any Mishnayas, Bryces, or Mamers, the statement is when you start off and you present a new piece of Halachic Chidush. Don't you put Kash and Terrace together? This is an acronym? That's right. It's important. Same thing with Lewis. No. So, a kasha, a kasha is, don't confuse kasha and question, I'll explain the difference between them. A kasha should be translated as a difficulty. A kasha is when you relate to a previous part of the Gemara, whether it be a statement or a question or answer on Araya, and you find there is something logically inconsistent with it. Either it's internally logically inconsistent, for example, how gufa kasha, or it's externally logically inconsistent, for example, aceway, maceway, etc. Either there's an external reason why this makes no sense, or there's an internal reason why this makes no sense, that's a kasha. A question is not when there's a difficulty, 
it when there's a lack of information. When I ask the Shaila, I don't have an agenda, there's nothing wrong, I just don't know where the Pasuk is. I don't know what the Makor for the mission is. When I say my timer, I'm not asking because there's something difficult. I just want to know what the reason is. Whereas when I say Hogufakasha, I'm saying there's something wrong. A answer provides the information asked by a question. A terrorist is a resolution. It resolves the difficulty begun with a kasha. And a raya is a support. The nature of a support is the thing that it supports has to be unsteady in its own right. And the, uh, the support has to be coming from a source which is of higher authority than the person that stated the statement. Correct? That's why an Amora brings a Raya from a Brysa, not from another Amora. Good. So now you've got the seven, the six, sorry, primary elements of debate in the analysis of the Gemara. Now, I would teach you over to these guys when you start learning. You always have to make a, a um, sorry? Terrets. Um, you always have to make a balance between the excitement and the technical skills. If you become too heavy technically, you'll lose your shear. If you don't have enough technical skills, so they'll never learn anything. So you have to make a very careful balance between how much technical stuff you say and how much um, exciting stuff you say. So this is very technical. The next point you say is as follows. And this is really quite amazing. That when Ravin and Ravashi redacted the Gemara, when they edited it and they put it together, they did us an incredible favor. What they did was, they created a system of interlinking words which signify the shift in the direction of debate and tell us which way the debate is going. So thereby, by us learning those crucial keywords, we can essentially navigate through any sugi and shas regardless of whether we are familiar with the context or not. In other words, if I learn the standard Gomorrah key phrases, if I know those words, I will be able to open up a Gomorrah in Menachas, a Gomorrah in Bavakama, a Gomorrah in Shabbos, and I'll be able to say, Kasha Teretz, Raya Kasha Teretz. Even though I don't understand anything in between. Now, if you're thinking about a person that's learning how to learn and you don't tell him this piece of information and every time you see an Aesop, you go, Aesop, there's a Kasha. You're robbing him of a tremendous aid that he could have. So what I really think is crucial in conjunction with this is you have to make a song and dance every single time you come to a Katak. Every single time you come to a Katak. Now, a katak is a crucial, critical keyword. How does it get to the acronym? Let's try that again. It's a crucial Talmudic key phrase. It is a key Talmudic key phrase. Why is it called a key Talmudic key phrase? Because it opens up what's going to happen next in the sugya. It's a key phrase. It will open up to you. When you see Aesve, even if you don't look for or further, you know it is an attack from one Amoya to another based on a scriptural or Tanaic source. When you see Minah Hanimid, you know it is an information question seeking a scriptural source to the above din. When you see Maskif, you know it is an attack on logic from one Amoya to another. Don't ask me from Amafkit. When you see Bishlai Me'ela, you know that every Bishlaimer is married to Ella, not Ella Fitzgerald. When you see a Bishlaimer Ella, you know every Bishlaimer is married to an Ella. So if I see Bishlaimer, I know an Ella will follow, and I will know that we are introducing a two-pronged kasha, which affirms one of the previous sides saying it's right, and asks the problem on the second side, which begins with the word Ella. In other words, what I strongly recommend you do is if you're going to be teaching Gemara, make sure that you have a very fluent and articulate way of describing the function of every single key phrase. The best source reference I've seen for doing this is there's a book called um, 
Frank, Talmud, practical Talmud, de- I think Talmud Dictionary something. It's written by someone called um, Frank. That's not, that's not his first name. Yitzhak Frank. Yitzhak Frank. Um, so he has got an incredible, the book is a phenomenally clear book of illustrating all the key phrases with examples. If, if you're going to be teaching a shir and you go through the sugya and you don't know precisely how to define something like an ace and you look at the, the, the Frank, he'll give you a beautiful definition. Learn it off by heart and teach it to your students off by heart. Okay, I think we've almost run out of time. So hopefully next week we'll go into the actual application of these things to the Gemara. If there is a next week. Okay, the, que- the question he's asking is when you're translating the Gemara and they're writing in the words, sometimes they write the word directly above the Hebrew word and sometimes they put a one and they write it on the margin, which is a more preferred way of translation. So I would suggest that the margin with the number is more preferred because that way the person gets to learn the word easier because he looks at the word and he doesn't see the translation on top. He has to think what it is and then he has to try to recall it. So therefore he's got more of an incentive to learn the word off by heart. Punctuation comes with translation and then it helps your number. Go on. A teret is just the Hebrew word for resolution. So I apologize for my writing. It's clearly not that clear. It's falling into the hands of vagueness textually. Inside of Lewis. Once you've done the implication part and you've had this clear picture on a Sunday day, it seems to me that a person can get stuck between that and then moving to understanding where he has to abstract the concept and he's always going to think about that, su- that Sunday day and not be able to actually abstract the concept. Welcome to learning. In other words, that's, what, that's, a difficult, that's the difference between Gemara and Alocha. But drop, drop the implication. The question is as follows. If you're in the illustration case, we mean that you make something so, so practical, so vivid, and then you have to go on to the understanding where you make it completely abstract, surely that will create difficulty in the person's understanding, or that will be difficult to resolve. Um, so I think it will be difficult to resolve, but that play between Pratt and Klal is a crucial mental skill that you need to develop. And you're right, that what happens is you'll find that often the machlokes the, 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 the that we show him are based on different illustrations because every illustration has got a different set of klalim attached to it. So that's what learning is all about. But you haven't sabotaged them by giving them an illustration from the very beginning? Well, again, w- whenever you do anything, you always have an insurance policy that everything could be changed. So in other words, th- that's why it's such an important lesson that you get a guy to commit. Now what we'll see in Amanech Zakat, I've committed to what the case is. Then I'm going to see the Gemara and it's going to destroy my case. So that's valuable. Because now I learn the flexibility of thinking. Uh, yes? How do you keep boring to death by the translation part? Again, it depends on the level of motivation of the guys. Now, if you deal with Baalei Tshuva, sometimes Baalei Tshuva are so motivated, they can do translation for 17 hours straight. <laughs> um, if, 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 again, it, it depends on the Olam, but generally, for example, let, let's say, what the Mishnah we translated, I managed to hold your attention through it. And I think your attention span is way less than the guy trying to... Uh, uh, no, 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 not because, not because, because, no, because for you it's very boring to go through something that you know the words Lechatchila, what they mean, that's what I mean. But still, you're able to sit down through it. So, so you, you gauge it, you gauge it, you gauge it. And you, you keep on the same thing with the technical. You, with the minute you feel there's a drop in interest in the share, so you spice it up with something. So you tell people not to show up to share, but on by certain levels, they're going to get. Again, what? what? It's very difficult. If you've got a different, if you've got a spectrum of guys in the share, you've got one guy that can read and translate, and another guy that can't, and you have to put those guys into the same share, it's a recipe for disaster. Sometimes you're an honest and then you have to be a very, very clever teacher to do it. Lechatchila, you want to put everyone in the same level in the same share. Often in Chutzlaret, when you've only got, you know, six guys who are from, and the one guy's learned in Shiva for a year, and the other guy's just a beginner, then you have to be very, very adept at keeping everyone happy. Moshe. Don't go into text. Do what we did last week. Do not go into text. 
Oh, so they're coming on a trip, they've been learning there, and now they're coming for an ejection there to Israel. So then I, then I would dafka say, guys, I'm going to teach you a skill set that I want you to take back with you. And then I'd focus on the skill set. Okay? Regarding the question, you said, um, let's say the first Mishnah Elam Matthias, if you jump to the Gemara for the first case, you would bring them to this whole long Mishnah of all the cases that's a question when you've got a long Mishnah do you stop them or do you go through the entire Mishnah and go back again it depends on how generally it's better to stop in the middle and go into the Gemara if the latter part of the Mishnah is not relevant okay uh, yeah the reason for the ordering of the so, so that's a great question. In other words, we said that the last of the three, five, three, or the first three is number, label, and order. Is order necessary for the basic understanding? The truth is, order is, let's say, the, most, the greatest luxury. It's, the, it's a much more advanced thinking skill than numbering and labeling. But often it does put things into perspective. But again, often you won't be able to have a clarity in the order and it will just become an unanswered question. It is a little bit more advanced than numbering and labeling. Agreed. Do, you saw, well, it won't mess people up. All it will do is it will make their mind clearer when they do see what the order is. How much did you focus on the actual literal translation as opposed to the more general translation of what, how we would translate words? Try to be as literal as possible. Because if you translate in a general sense, so one that you'll be reading a Gemara and it will, will mean this here and it will mean something else somewhere else and they'll never know what the word means. Justifying like how one word can mean twelve different things, as we often see in Gemara. So you have to say this word has got many different meanings. In this context, it means this. It could mean this and that. But sometimes it's easy to translate a sentence and not to translate word by word. That's a cop out. Okay.